Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Mr. Stan Goldmans, who has written an incredible book, a description of his mother's experiences, his reactions to them. The gentleman is a poet with words, and we're looking forward to the next hour. Welcome to Seldom Said, Stan. Oh, no, thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Glad we were able to do this. Uh, I know it's taken a few uh, a few attempts. Well, it was worth waiting for. I wonder if we could start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you this time and place. Uh, I was uh, born in Los Angeles uh, after World War II, uh, and uh, I, I, we grew up in Boyle Heights, which at the time was a place where young Im- new immigrants moved and is uh, still a place where uh, many people move from uh, Central America, especially. Um, yeah, I, I went to school here in Los Angeles. I became a lawyer here in Los Angeles. I started teaching here in Los Angeles. I'm just an, I'm an oddly just an LA boy, although most people think once they've heard me speak for a while, I was probably raised in New York, but it's not true. I think what they're, what they're hearing in my voice is just Jewish, uh, being raised with a couple of Yiddish accented parents. I think I have a bit of that sound of someone who might've been raised and, and, and transplanted to Los Angeles, raised in New York. Uh, I was a public defender for eight years in downtown Los Angeles, where uh, near the latter part of it, I was defending murderers for a living, uh, but uh, did a lot of did a lot of drunk driving and petty thefts on the way on the way to doing those kinds of cases. And I started teaching the day before I joined the public defender's office. I um, I started I got as soon as I got out of law school, I literally applied for a teaching job and. A law school offered me a job full-time. I decided not to take it. Instead, I took a part-time job, and I spent eight years as a public defender and then teaching on the nights uh, at law school until finally I left the public defender's office and started teaching full-time. And a few years later, I got into the news business, oddly enough, uh, started writing for the New York Daily News, uh, had a show on CNBC on Saturday night, 9 o'clock East Coast time, or at least I was a rotating host on that show. They would rotate uh, hosts every uh, every few weeks, and uh, I, it was a show I was I was allowed to host uh, a number of times. And then, oddly enough, in spite of uh, my politics, which I think were not known at the time, I was uh, offered a job with a uh, soon-to-be uh, organization called the Fox News Channel, and I worked full-time for them for a little over ten years. Uh, I, I think my most fun experiences with them were because I was. Every every Christmas, they would uh, ask me if I'd come back to New York and host for uh, a couple of weeks, which was really about my, about my only chances to host at the Fox News Channel. And the reason they asked me to come back and host is, as far as I could tell, it was the only Jew on their air. So all the everybody else wanted to take Christmas off. I didn't care. So <laughs> it was either that or Chinese food in a movie. So I would go to I would go to New York. Um, I would go to New York and spend a couple of weeks there over Christmas break. And even if I was teaching, I could still go there. And I, 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 the school allowed me to keep my tenure as a tenured law professor uh, during those 10 years, which I found um, I was very grateful for because uh, otherwise I would have had to give it up. And as I like to say, Roger Ailes hired me and then Roger Ailes fired me after a little over 10 years, deciding perhaps my uh, 
my politics didn't quite fit in, I think, with the channel any longer. And uh, so ever since then, I've just been, uh, been teaching full time. Do you find yourself, Stan, that living under the umbrella of political correctness and ideology and format, the idea of presenting your own views freely, it seems something everyone would wish. Uh, yes, I, I think there are issues. I think I've been teaching, you know, I started teaching when I was 26. So, you know, as a law professor. Um, so it's been a long time. And as a result, I've watched the generations pass. And there's, there's no question that, although I don't know if they've changed as much as some people think, there's no question that how you word things, what word you use in class can, uh, can really have an impact on the way the students view you. Uh, and uh, uh, I, you know, I, it, 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 one has to be careful with one's words. Uh, I remember once, uh, oh, 25 years ago, I was on a CNBC show as a guest, uh, which I did hundreds of times. Um, you know, that's how I got, that's how I eventually got to, to to anchor my own show for a while. Um, and the, the host, very nice gentleman, a little bit older than I was, said, you know, Stan, you, you teach law and you have women lawyers, law students and male law students. I said, yes. He said, do you treat the women law students any differently than you do the male law students? And I said, no, because I would like it to make it out of class and through the garage and to my car alive. <laughs> So no, I don't. I don't treat them differently. I never have. So it's been true for decades now. It's not just a matter of of behaving yourself now in a way that you didn't before. I think that's always been true for for being a law professor. I think now it's. I, I think there's an emphasis on language that there never was. I I believe it is misplaced personally. I think that I've I've always followed the. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Carlin philosophy that there's no such thing as a bad word or a good word. There's only how the word is used and the intent it is used with. And that is a, that is a now no longer approved of uh, concept, in my opinion, which I, I find sad. Um, I agree. Uh, but uh, that's uh, and also a bit uh, discriminatory against elderly people, because I got to tell you, we, you know, once you reach a certain age, you're not quite a, as in with what the latest two month word of disapproval is or approval so it's uh it you know i i get i get a little static from the students but i i tell them that's age discrimination for them to be doing that and they ought to be ashamed of themselves i once had a student ask me my age and i told them and she sighed she didn't say a word she simply sighed <laughs> i thought about failing her on the spot but yeah it was appropriate. No, I, I, whenever asked my age by a student, my answer is I'm older than my teeth and younger than my feet. Um, <laughs> Marvelous. But uh, that's, uh, never mind. So, no, I, I, uh, I, look, I've, I've been, because I started so young, I'm now the longest serving member of my faculty. Hmm. And uh, so it, uh, I don't know if, it, that used to come with some uh, perks. It no longer does. <laughs> Other than the fact I get the biggest office. I think that's the one perk, but that's it. There, there seems to be an attitude that, that presents things in a lack of pragmatism. A lot of what we do is in Thomas logic. There is the feeling that truth is relative. Talking about things as catastrophic as the Holocaust, do you feel there's a danger of truth becoming 
a relative ideology? Well, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's been true for a long, long time. Uh, and, and if we end up with people saying, well, it's alternate truth, um, that's no. Um, I mean, there are there are gradations. I mean, uh, absolute truth is a difficult thing to conceive of. But even if you can't reach, you know, perfection and being completely truthful, you make an effort to try to recognize facts as they occurred and not. I mean, I have so many friends and I, I have never, to my knowledge, maybe this is the reason why I lasted for more than a decade on the Fox News Channel. I, I have friends who are far further left than I am. And I have friends who are f still from the Fox News Channel, friends who are far further right than I am. And I have never kept or or made a friend purely based on their politics. And unless one is truly monstrous in their beliefs, uh, I don't I don't think that that I should or they should discriminate against me because I, I hold certain political views. So and this this business about always being at war, you know, and hating people of another political ilk, I, I find bewildering. I I'm, some of my best times are arguing with some of my friends, both the left and the right. I do a lot of work with Holocaust survivors. I try to interview as many as I can. And the station has been very embracing of that. And a survivor recently told me that this is the first time since 1938 that she kept her bags packed. I found it chilling. I'd be curious as to your reaction. I think one of the problems with political correctness, it, it, people talk about it coming from the left, and I think it does come often from the left, but it also comes from the right. And it also comes from people who are on the left or in the middle who are afraid that if they aren't politically correct in, in, to the nth degree, they, they will in some, it will some way come back to haunt them um, you know, when their side is attacked. And I, and I think that has become the case with uh, the rise of fascism in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, I can see many dangerous analogies taking place all around the world today in this country, in Hungary, in, 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 uh, in the Middle East, uh, uh, there, there are traces of it in, 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 in Israel, which I, I love and visit every year. There are, you know, it's in Poland, it's in, I mean, they're all, all over this, uh, this world. We are seeing the same sorts of beginnings that we saw in the rise of, of uh, you know, uh, Mussolini and uh, Hitler. And the very fact that we are not allowed to analogize to it is, I think, dangerous. Uh, I mean, I, I am the last person to want to minimize the Nazi atrocities by calling someone today a Nazi if they, you know, don't even approach that level. It, I think it tends to demean what happened during the Holocaust, but that shouldn't prevent us from looking at the beginnings of the rise of authoritarianism and totalitarianism and fascism and all, you know, communism and, and the way that was taken advantage of by leaders who simply were watching out for themselves and wanted as much power as they could get. And by the inability to actually compare this to things that go on to Nazi Germany in terms of the beginnings of it, I think 
really handicap the ability to truly depict the dangers. Because one of the things I learned in writing this book, as if I didn't know it before, a book about the Nazis and the Holocaust, is what is that these things, the, the urge for genocide never entirely <laughs> disappears. Um, there's, the, there's a line from an old anti-Semite, oddly enough, by the name of Voltaire, uh, mm. who hated Jews. But he has one of my, I think, most uh, a line that I find most poignant, and that is, those who can make you believe in absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And, uh, and there's a, it turns out now we know there's just this very little step between convincing people that, that a certain group or a certain ideology is dangerous to them and their families. And, and, and in human nature, there's a very tiny jump to that and the willingness to do almost anything to get rid of them and protect yourself and your families. And that's, that's a very, that's a, that gap turns out to be much smaller psychologically than, than I think was perceived before. And therefore, we always have to be on guard and alert for the beginnings of it so we can nip it in the bud while there is still time. Do you find yourself a pessimist who hopes? I, I, I hate to say, yes, I am, I, I am a, uh, I am a pessimist who hopes, uh, but uh, you know, when you come out of a Holocaust family as I did where my, you know, I never knew my brother and sister because they were gassed by the Nazis you know, a few years before I was born, and I was lucky enough to be born after the war and on U.S. territory um, as opposed to them. And, and I do, you know, I, I, I must say that um, growing up in that milieu of survivors, all my mother's friends, all my parents' friends were also survivors. You know, that's who we, we hung around with. I had friends who came over on the weekend. They were the kids of Holocaust survivors. Um, and knowing what happened to my brother and sister when they were quite young, I will say all my life has, uh, I can't see a small child uh, sometimes uh, enjoying themselves without, uh, without thinking what happened uh, to the children in the camps. Uh, it's, uh, so, so yes, I would, suspe I would suspect that I am a, a, a bit of a pessimist, but always hopeful that Martin Luther King was right about the, you know, the, arc of, the arc of justice, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice. Uh, I, I, I'm hoping that. I must confess about three years ago, I, I found myself questioning that philosophy, but we still, I still have hope. Keep marching. Yes. <laughs> we try. With a, but, with, but with a mask. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Curious said, your life seems a porridge of goals, achievements. Was there an epiphanal moment where you said, before this I was, after this I am? You know, it, it, things just just move slowly. They, they, they come apace. They, uh, you know, they, I, I don't know if there was any moment in my life I, I've, I've had ideas that suddenly came upon me. The idea for writing this book and how to write it, for example, just literally, I think I was literally in the gym working out, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, you know what I should do someday? I should write a book about this subject, and this is how I should structure it. Yeah, that would be interesting. And, you know, I didn't do it for a couple of years, and I sat down thinking it would take me about, you know, between eight and 18 months to write it, and it took eight years. 
Mm. So uh, because the research turned out to always lead me to something else, you know, a little a little detail I would want to find out and I'd have to thumb through three different books to find a sentence dealing with it. There were times when I would have like 80 books sitting in front of me on my desk, you know, actual books. The librarians at my law school who would search for these titles, uh, sometimes they only existed like in one library somewhere in the country, we'd have to borrow it, were they said I was the only professor on, in the, on the law school faculty who used actual books that almost everybody else in the faculty did every, all the research online. Well, that's because they wrote law books. And I was writing a history book. I, you know, I, I was uh, quite illiterate as a child. I had a terrible uh, case of dyslexia and still do. I, I think it's returning now that I'm getting older. But uh, I didn't literally learn to read till I was about 16. And I, I was failed from classes. I, I, I was put back. I was about the oldest kid in my high school class graduating. I think they, um, they only kept promoting me because I was older. Um, but uh, when I started to learn to read, I discovered school was kind of easy. And uh, I went to UCLA and uh, within, what was that? Uh, six years of being illiterate, I graduated five Beta Kappa with a degree in history. But this is the only time I've used it. Was I went back to it, you know, all those decades later, and decided to uh, to write a history book. And uh, Stan, if I may, we're approaching our first station break. This is developing into a marvelous conversation. We'll be back uh, in a few seconds. Uh, I'd love to pursue your analogies and your descriptions of writing a book and the protocol that you have in writing because it's a beautifully written book. This is Seldom Said, my name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back, this is Seldom Said, again, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Mr. Stanley Goldman's, a person who has written a marvelous book and has had a marvelous write, to this point in time. Uh, Stan, uh, I'd like to pursue uh, your protocol in writing, how you approach it. Eight years a long time, but the result was marvelous. The, um, the protocol was never planned. I simply, you know, I'd never, I wrote for the New York Daily News for about two and a half years. I think they, I, I have about 88 um, columns articles, stories I wrote for them in that period of time. I think I might have written a few more, but I wasn't able, when I went back finally to find them, they weren't online. So I literally had to go to the New York Daily News in, um, in New York and go through their archives. And I found 88 articles I written, but they were all very short. And also I was a public defender for eight years. And one of my, one of my theories was to always follow, oddly enough, the words of, a, of an evangelist of a bygone era in Los Angeles, a guy named Billy Sunday, who, mm. who once said, no souls are saved after the first 20 minutes. And uh, that's the way I always approached giving closing arguments and cross-examination when I was a trial lawyer. I had about 70 jury trials when I was a trial lawyer and a couple hundred court trials, but especially for jury trials. Keep it short, keep it concise, the same way, you know, writing for a newspaper has to be or giving eight second sound bites on television which i was requested to do on hundreds and hundreds of occasions uh when i was when i was with fox and cnbc um and uh i i never thought i could write a book 
because every time I try to write a law review article that was supposed to be 50 pages long, it would end up being 18 pages long because I just, I couldn't stand redundancy. I couldn't mm -hmm. stand, you know, I just needed to make it as concise as possible. And when I got to writing the book, I, I first the research took a long time because I kept thinking, oh, well, maybe I should include something about this. And then I have to go searching for it and I'd find a thought on it and I'd, I'd try to find a place to, to where it would go. And then when I had the whole thing written, um, I just didn't flow, in my opinion, because I really, in some respects, had written three short books and um, one about how my mother survived the Holocaust, which is, I thought, per, one of the more remarkable survival stories of the Holocaust. I realize that's a it's an odd thing to say because so many of them, all of them were remarkable. Hers had some, once I learned about it, which I didn't learn till after she was gone, after researching it was really quite extraordinary. Um, I decided to include the story of the Nazis, meaning the ones who made the decisions which kept her in captivity and which spared her life by needing her to work at various places. Uh, and, uh, and then finally, um, I decided to include the story of my mother's life with me after the war and how things she did. I, I just had started getting a few stories here and there. I would intersplice about how my mother, this, my mother's behavior, having her having done something or always doing this, you know, when I was growing up, I could trace it now once I thought about it back to things that had happened to her during the war. I, I tell one story in the book about how she, you know, I'm talking about how, how hungry the, uh, the women that my mother was with during the war, how, how hungry the, these, these people, these Jews working at slave labor and, and, and kept in the camps were. And, uh, and, I, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I say that uh, psychologists have concluded after interviewing Holocaust survivors that it was unusual that how many of them said that they, they had these dreams during the War of Bread. And I remembered that when I was about 14 or 15, and I, I, I started complaining to my mother that, Mom, you know, there's never any room in the freezer for ice cream. I want some ice cream sometimes at home, and we never have room because you've got all this bread frozen in the freezer, and you never eat it. I mean, it just you pile a freezer filled with bread so there's no room in it for even an ice cream stick and then it sits there for six months or a year and then you throw it out and you you put new bread in there and what's the deal here why can't we just have some room and she paused and you know and i was 14 15 and she paused and you know looked away and said you know this and i do my mother rather well by the way if you got the audiobook you'd hear me doing my mother's accent i i i, I freak out people sometimes who knew my mother she said then then i was starving in the war, I, I swore to myself, if I ever lived through this, I would never be without bread. That's in Yiddish translation, without bread. Mm. And um, she just stood there for a minute. Didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. And she went to the freezer. And she pulled out all the bread and threw it away and never mm. saved bread again. And I told that story once years ago to a, a former student of mine who was a lawyer. And uh, I said that story and her response to me was, well, you really did her a favor. I mean, you know, she got over this phobia thanks to you identifying it. And I said, well, Ev, that's true. And it may be, but if it's true, 
how come 50 years later, I still feel guilt for having asked? Mm. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, so that, you know, that, so I, I had a few of those stories intermingled and then it occurred to me that, you know, that maybe I should do more of that. And uh, so at this point, the, I mean, when it finally came out, the book is basically a blending from paragraph to paragraph in many cases, not chapter to chapter, from sentence to sentence, a blending of uh, my mother's survival uh, from in the war, what exactly happened to her, uh, the story of who the Nazis were, who made the decisions and what might have motivated them, uh, and the story of my mother and myself and her life after the war and what it was like being raised by by such a person who had suffered so much and could never really overcome it. Um, and that, that ended up being a, a blending of three short books into one book. You mentioned Billy Sunday, and I remember uh, reading somewhere in historiography that he always used baseball analogies. In seeking out your mother and her past, he used the phrase coming home, sliding home, we're coming home. Did you feel you found her in so many different ways in researching this book? Well, I, I, yes, I think, I think, um, look, I, 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 I'm in the, you can see me on video here. Uh, I'm in the, I'm in the, I'm, I'm kind of dim here. I don't have much light on in my, uh, in my dining room at the moment. So I'm, I'm in dim light, but if you could, I, I, uh, to, astonishingly, my hair hasn't turned very gray in spite of my age. I, I tend to, I still have dark hair. And uh, I had almost no gray hairs in my head. And uh, for years, people assumed I was dyeing my hair. Um, and I wasn't. It just happens to be heredity. But I started, you know, I tried to work around my mother and myself in the book. I did all the research, all the work, and then it was... And I'd written large chunks of it. And then finally, I decided I have to really sit down and really tackle my, the, my life with my mother and myself, uh, which was something I try not to, not to think about much. And I sat down and for six months, I would, I would come up with stories, you know, discard them, add them, edit them down, expand them. And in that six-month period, I grew gray. I mean, I've got gray around my temples. And the, whether coincidence or not... Um, I, start, I got some significant amount of gray hair around my temples. And then as soon as the six months were over and I was done and I put the pen down from writing about her and just started editing the rest of the book, the gray hair stopped coming in. I mean, I still have that gray, but, but I didn't get any more. So uh, I, think it, I think it was a, a real emotional toll sitting down and, and telling the story. And I insisted about my relationship with my mother and myself to be as scrupulously honest and revealing as I could be because... How could I expect people to believe the truth of the history I was writing, which I insisted on documenting? I have, mm. you don't have to read the end notes, but I have, I have, you know, full quarter of the book or, or end notes um, uh, documenting everything I say in the book. So I, I had to be honest about myself or else, you know, people might not believe or would deny some of the things I was saying in the, in the text of the book about, about the Germans. There are so many things that come out in a discussion of an event so horrific. I do remember doing an interview with a survivor who just before the first station break asked me, Robert, whether he wanted to come back with the story of how Mangala asked him to run naked before him. And it was stunning. It was 
perhaps fortuitous that it was a station break because there's nothing that can follow that. Can you give me a, a pictorial image of who this lady was? She's described as a little Jewish woman whose life was spared by Heinrich Himmler. Can you tell us about him so that we paint the picture with our mind? Of my mother? Indeed. Yeah. Um, well, um, my mother was a terribly fragile, tiny woman in appearance. She was, she was under five feet tall. I, I don't think until she was in her late 60s when she started to be more sedentary that she, that she ever ticked more than maybe 91 pounds. Uh, she was probably in the high 80s most of the time, um, even in well-nourished America, as I, as I like to say. She was still tiny. And, um, and yet, uh, and I thought one of the, one of the, I, the, the, people wonder where I selected the title of my book from, which is an odd title, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream. And it's a, it's a line from a speech by, Cromwell, a historical character uh, in Shakespeare's apparently last play, Henry VIII. And Cromwell, um, I mean, I, I just thought the line left to the mercy of a rude stream, rude stream refers to history, the currents of history, that rude stream of history that carries us with it. And she was clearly flopping and jetsam from, uh, from, uh, of history in, in some respects in the camps and just being moved with you know, hundreds of other women from one place to another with little self-control um, of, of the consequences. But, um, but she survived through it with incredible strength. And it was that strength I never recognized till I was already basically at middle age because I had assumed she was frail and fragile and she was always getting these terrible migraine headaches. And, but she was as tough a person, uh, you know, the women who were, I mean, I once said to somebody, she, you know, she was probably as, in some respects, as tough as any woman of the 20th century. And somebody asked me, how can you possibly say that, you know, kind of scornfully? And I said, well, because that's what the women who survived Auschwitz with her had to say, <laughs> you know. So if, you, if you're talking about women who survived Auschwitz, you're talking about the, the, the toughest, you know, the toughest people in the world who managed to get through it psychologically and physically. And my mother was, as I say in, in one story, you know, a woman told me, and she, my mother never told me, but the woman told me after my mother died was that, uh, you know, my, she had, they were being, uh, you know, she's, this woman, I won't go into the details of it, but she, she, you know, they were being bombed at one point. They were in Berlin uh, working in slave labor after a ship from Auschwitz. You can imagine being stripped, being suddenly taken from the line to the gas chamber in Auschwitz, thrown on a train. It moves for three days and three nights at a snail's pace. And then when the doors open up three days later, you're in Berlin. You're a Jew in Berlin in the middle of the war from Auschwitz to Berlin. What the heck are we doing in Berlin? And the answer was they were put to work in a factory. The Germans needed slave labor. Um, but uh, when they were in that camp, there were being, you know, as I didn't say in the book, I had a sentence, but my an editor of mine suggested I throw it out because it, it might be interpreted as too flip. I'm kind of sorry I took it out. My line was uh, when, the, when the Nazis weren't trying to kill my mother, the allies were, which is true. They were bombing the factories because they were a German factory in the middle of Berlin. So um, there was always these bombings. And one night there was these bombings and my mother was running with this woman who I, I interviewed, her, her, one of her friends. And uh, she's, they're, they're running and there's a, 
and, and, and this thing takes place and the woman, I won't go into it. The woman just sits down. She just won't move. You know, let them kill me. I'm done. I can't take this anymore. And my mother was like four foot, 10 or 11, just picks up this woman. She's about five, six inches taller than my mother. Under, puts her arms under the wom- around the woman's under her, sh- under her arms and, dra- and drags her while saying, you are not going to let them kill you. You're not going to die. We're not going to let the Germans get away with this. We are going to live. And we're going to, that is going to be our revenge against the Germans is to live. And she dragged her to a bomb shelter. It was at night. And uh, during the day, the Jews weren't allowed to use bomb shelters because there were workers on the factory grounds. But at night, there were only the Jews. And so they let them use the bomb shelter. So she dragged her to the bomb shelter. And when they got to the door of the bomb shelter, the woman told me, that there was an explosion and they looked back and the bomb had dropped right where they had, where she'd been lying. So um, this woman said, you know, my mother, my mother was just so much stronger than the rest of them, uh, just emotionally and physically very strong, or at least many of the others. Uh, and that's the kind of woman she was until I was, till I was 40. I just thought she was this frail little woman who, you know, who, who you had to treat with kid gloves. And in some respects, that's uh that was the error of my life because I, um, I wouldn't do anything to, to upset my mother. I, life with, on, with my mother for the first 40 years was walking on eggshells, always agreeing to do whatever she wanted in the end because she'd be too distraught. And I felt given all she'd gone through in her life, I could not harm her anymore. I couldn't add to her pain. Um, and it was only when I was, you know, basically turning 40 that I realized, you know, she's not going to die if I, if I disagree with her or don't call her every night to tell her where I am, which she still insisted on, or, or you know, live at home with her, which she, she really wanted me to do. I mean, I'm, she, she's going to be able to take this. She's very tough. And it turned out she was. She was, uh, she was just, and physically tough. Uh, when, when after she had her stroke and could no longer use her left side and only had use of her, of her right side and was in bed for six years, attendants who would work with her would tell me that they were astonished by her physical strength. Literally, I remember one attendant, it was a woman much bigger than I, you know, I'm about 5'8", she was like 5'10", large, not skinny at all, a big woman. And she said, I want to take your mother to the bathroom this morning. And, uh, and she said, I don't need to go. And I said, better we go now while I've got time, said this woman. Uh, you know, I'll be cooking in the, me- you know, in the meantime. I want to take you now. And she said, my mother said, yeah, but they don't want to go. And <laughs> the woman said, no, no, I'm going to take you now. And she said, no, I said, I'm not going. And the woman started to pick my mother up, you know, because this was a very large lady. She was hired in large part because she could pick my mother up and move her places. And she said, my mother with her one good hand, and she'd been laying in bed not doing anything for years with her one good hand, grabbed this attendant's bicep and squeezed it. And the woman said, I have never felt pain like that in my life. Mm. This was like a metal vice destroying my arm. I had to drop her. Your mother is physically stronger, I discovered, than anyone I've ever come in contact with. So yeah, they, they, were, they were miraculous, those people. And my mother was, was one of them. It's amazing whenever... One discusses the stories of people such as she. They're just exemplary, special. Uh, one hopes they would pass by this way again. We're going to be coming back in a few seconds, and we'll pursue the book, and we'll pursue your mother's history and your efforts to record it.
The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Guest Stan Goldman, back in a moment. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The last segment of what has been an extraordinary program. Our guest is Mr. Stan Goldman. He's been telling us the story of his book, telling us the story of his mother, an extraordinary individual. Stan, when we talk about your mother's history and the book that you've written about her, how has it impacted on your life as a second gen? Uh, well, you know, I I, um, I think people ask me if it was cathartic, and I disappoint them by saying no. I don't think it was. I don't think it involved a release, but it is. It is. It is just something I needed to do. I begin the book in the preface by talking about when I was twelve or thirteen, and my father had only had died a, a year before, and and I was in a restaurant eating a hamburger with my mother at a counter, and. And I and I, I I felt something in my mouth and I, I put my hand in my mouth and I realized there was blood and it turned out there was a piece of of uh, of glass that had been embedded in the uh, hamburger. So my mother was very upset. I wasn't badly injured. I didn't even need stitches. My mouth was cut, but it healed. And but my mother still wanted to sue the 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 restaurant for for you know harming her son and putting who else who else might eat hamburgers with glass in it you know so we went to see our family lawyer a guy named donald sterling who eventually became notorious for owning the clippers um at the time he was just a little jewish lawyer in town and uh, they, they he assigned me to one of his assistants who was a uh, a fellow who was definitely not jewish had only come to los angeles recently a lawyer and he, he um he said uh, he said something to me had never occurred to me before which was you know, you're in a very unique position. You 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 live in this community of Holocaust survivors. I don't think he called it the Holocaust. I don't know if we called it the Holocaust then. You know, from the camps, and you you really are in a position to to write a book about this someday. And I and I was thinking to myself, what the hell is he talking about? How could I ever? What I mean, rewrite a book? I can't even read. What is he? You know. So I mean, but oddly enough, that thought from all those decades ago never left my mind. And I always thought to myself as the years passed, you know, I ought to write a book about this. You know, I ought to write a book about this. And I just never did it. And finally, writing it even, uh, rather obsessively for a period of a number of years, um, there's, there's, a, there's no catharsis, but there's a certain amount of knowledge that I acquired. And I can't say it was wisdom, but knowledge and awareness and also relief. I, um, I, 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 got the book done. I told the story. Uh, in some respects, since my mother was the only survivor of a very large extended family, uh, I always felt that it was kind of like, you know, the last line in Moby Dick, you know, and only I am left to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it had to be told. And the second generation like myself are not getting any younger. I mean, I, I, I see every... Uh, you know, every few weeks, I know somebody I know or somebody I knew faintly is passing away. So um, we got to get it written before we go or else there'll be nobody with firsthand knowledge of the people. I may not have firsthand knowledge of the events, but at least I have firsthand knowledge of having grown up with the survivor. And by the way, that one of the reasons why I wrote the book, I don't say it in the book, but I, I wanted I always get this strange look from people. When I mention, if it ever comes up, which is rare, if it ever comes up that my brother and sister were killed in the camps, 
I get this pause. And I, the, the most typical response I get is, you mean your mother's brother and sister were killed in the camps? Your parents' siblings were killed in the camps? I said, no, my siblings were gassed by the Germans. Um, and this startles people. And one of the reasons why I wanted to make certain it was known is that people think of this as like ancient history. This might as well be the, you know, the Middle Ages, as some people are concerned. But it is not so long ago. I mean, uh, and in some respects, I, I actually think of myself, although I didn't suffer any of the consequences, as being of the generation of the Holocaust uh, because my, my siblings were killed in it. And I never had any other, any other siblings. The closest relative I've got is on my father's side of the family, a, a first cousin. Uh, that's it. So, uh, no, it, it's, it's, it's not that long ago. And I think people should understand that. There is a, a quote, perhaps apocryphal, but alleged to uh, the late Pope John Twenty-Third. He was shown pictures of the camps and he kept on screaming out, how can this be? How can this be? Many people talk about Holocaust teaching as a potential part of every school's curriculum. How would you approach it for those on the high school level who are in a formative stage? Well, look, I wrote my book. I wrote my book with the thought in mind that I was writing. I wasn't writing it like a law professor. A lot of people think they're gonna, if they get the book, it's going to be some sort of esoteric thing with footnotes. And it's got footnotes. It does. It needed to be documented. But I wrote it like I was writing my columns for the New York Daily News. I wrote it. I didn't write it like I write law review articles about, you know, you know, stop and frisk doctrine, which used to be a specialty of mine. I wrote about a half a dozen articles on the subject of police stopping and frisking people, especially in 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 minority neighborhoods, a subject of topic today. But uh, I didn't write it like those scholarly articles. I I wrote it for what I hoped would be high school seniors or or you know undergrads in in college. Uh, although it turns out almost everybody who's who's written me or contacted me, having read the book, are septuagenarians or, or older. Nonetheless, uh, I wrote it for that level, hoping. You know, I had a, I gave a talk. It was assigned as reading in a undergraduate English class uh, at one of the universities here in Los Angeles. To my shock, uh, professor read it and decided she was going to assign this book um, in their lit class. So, and contacted me um, to tell me about it. And I said, well, you know, if you if you want me to come in and talk about it, you know, only a few miles from where I live. So um, I went. And a student contacted me later and actually came to my office at the law school. One of the students who'd been in the class who sat in and read my book and sat in my hour talking about it. And um, she sat down. She was of Asian ancestry and sat down and said, you know, uh, I'm going to graduate in a, in a few months and uh, uh, college. But if I had read your book when I was in high school, I think it would have changed my entire attitude towards the world and towards politics and, and towards life. Uh, it, reading a personal story, really telling the story of a Holocaust survivor, it turned out for me to be just, a, just an eye-opening experience, she said. And that's, that's why I wrote it. I wrote it in a, I tried to write it in a very accessible format. There's a fair amount of irony involved in the book. Um, it's not drudgery, and I tried to make it uplifting. I mean, because it's a story in the end of survival and of tremendous courage, not only of the women. It's about women, because my mother was in a, my mother was with this group of women who were shuffled from one place to another. In fact, 
the final place they were was the only German women's camp. It was a death camp just for women. And um, she was with this group and uh, she survived. And also the book is, of course, about a man named Masser, a, a, a Jew from Sweden who risked his life to, to fly into Germany in the middle of the war from neutral Sweden into, into, into Berlin to meet in the middle of the night in a secret encounter with a, you know, the head of the SS to try to see if he could, if he could negotiate the release of some of women from this death camp, which was in Germany and um, not that far from, um, from the Baltic, hoping that if he released some of these women, he could get them transported to, uh, to neutral Sweden and save their lives. And it was really one of the most dare devilish, daring, suicidal things you can imagine. And I write in the book that uh, a year before he left, the same Jew had uh, had helped arrange to send uh, um, a, a Swedish diplomat to Hungary, um, and uh, um, a very famous, you know, courageous diplomat, young diplomat. And the night before. Um, he left. They were at a group meeting to talk about what, what they should do. He was with there, this Lutheran with some Jews, and one of them was a rabbi. And the rabbi quoted the Talmud to this Lutheran and said, you know, who was going on this dangerous mission of his own. And uh, the rabbi said, uh, he who travels in the service of mankind journeys under the protection of the Lord. And I wrote that I was wondering if this Jew who a year later took his life in his own hands by flying on a Nazi plane into Berlin to meet with the head of the SS, uh, was thinking of those words as he was flying, that, you know, perhaps he would be spared because he was traveling in the service of mankind. It's so easy to consider heroism to be quixotic. We just do it by whim of the moment. But to hear a story like that, an individual able to contemplate the results and the potential violence that could accrue to it. It's extraordinary. I usually wait till the end of a program to advertise a book fully, but I want to make sure we do this appropriately. So, if you would, the book, its title, its the title, the title, is, the title is Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, and the subtitle is, uh, and, and this is true, by the way, I'm not making this, the subtitle was not created out of whole cloth. This is, I've, the book has been read by significant scholars and they, each scholar and several of them have agreed that I've, I've, I've backed up the title. The title is, uh, the subtitle is uh, um, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. And if you get to the end of the book, you'll see how I'm not making that up that the release of my mother actually turned out to have some dire consequences to the upper echelons of the Nazi party, including Hitler himself. I've got documentation uh, on from my, you know, eyewitness um, uh, uh, memoirs written by people who were in the bunker with Hitler. Uh, and you get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it in bookstores. I would recommend you look up my name, Stan Goldman, on Amazon because the title is kind of difficult to remember. Uh, and uh, so Stan Goldman, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream. And uh, I don't think you'll be, uh, you'll be uh, bored or depressed by the book. Something this good 
Do you feel there's a second volume someplace? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, it took me so long to write this book and uh, so much uh, obsession and dedication. And, you know, so I was doing an interview maybe a few months ago about the book on a, on a radio program. And the, and the, the, the host was as kind uh, as you are with respect to the book. And at the end, they, one of the last things they said to me was, uh, you know, uh, after reading this book, Professor Goldman, uh, I, you know, I realized what a wise person you are. And I responded, uh, you know, it's easy to sound wise after 35 drafts. Uh, uh, you know, I rewrote the book so many times that it seems like it just, you know, flew from my head, you know, flowed out into my pen. Maybe the way Mark Twain wrote, no, that's not true. I went over this like a sculptor working on a, on a, on a, uh, on a statue, just going over and over it again, looking for the bumps and uh, just to smooth them out. And just, I'd start from the beginning and I'd read over again and I'd cut out sentences and I'd change sentences and I'd move paragraphs and I'd even move chapters and then I'd start it again and I'd do the same thing again, over and over again, until I got it to the point where I thought it read in a way that would draw the reader in. Because my fear was a book about the Holocaust has to draw the reader in and flow from beginning to end, or someone may decide they're not going to finish it because they don't want to read more about the subject. And uh, I did everything I could to, to make it as readable a book as I thought I could produce. This story seems a story that everyone should read and know and understand. I am reminded of a phrase, I've overused it during these radio interviews, but uh, an older French phrase, do you feel yourself that you have become a person who can hang their hat anywhere because of what you've learned. Uh, yeah, I, I um, writing this book was a uh, was a real experience, and I got to tell you, I um, I didn't get a I didn't get a lot of support during the writing of it. And one of the the one one thing that was said to me constantly by non Jews and by Jews, which surprised me was I, they'd ask me what I was writing because, you know, as a law professor, you're supposed to be writing all the time. And I've written, you know, I've published a couple of dozen lengthy law review articles and I, you know, and I'd say, well, I'm writing a book about the Holocaust. And the reaction I would get would be inevitably, oh, like it's never been done before. And it's really, I mean, you know, how many, how many episodes of Law and Order have there been on TV and how many episodes of crime shows like it? You know, a uh, hundred thousand you know, uh, TV hours based, uh, you know, dedicated to murder and crime. And, and you think that the stories of the Holocaust are finished? You know, there 12 million people were executed during the Holocaust, 6 million of whom were Jews, 5 million, you know, included, you know, political prisoners and, and, and Roma and, and, and people who were gay. And it was, uh, you know, and uh, it, it, it was a there are there are 12 million stories to be told, not to mention those who lived like my mother. So the idea that they thought it was everything had been written about it uh, already is 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 madness, is nonsense. And I think it's an example of how audiences, uh, the, the public just isn't doesn't know enough about it i've not even had jews read my book and not say i didn't know this 
I mean, they all go, wow, this, I didn't know this happened like this. You know, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about this. I thought I knew about the subject, but no, it's, uh, it's, it's a subject that we're not done with yet. I would hope everybody who is the child of a Holocaust survivor would write a book about their parents' survival. I just happened to have had time and had this bug in me that got me to, to the end of it. Many African-American citizens are today speaking of not having had that discussion on what it means. Do you feel we've ever had a true discussion of what anti-Semitism means? I, I think we have not, and I'm always, I'm so often disappointed by it. I, there is a, um, a, um, a political commentator who worked in politics for years. I saw her on TV not that long ago. She's, uh, um, I, I don't know what her ancestry is. I know she's part, uh, part African-American. Uh, and uh, I would have, and she's very liberal, and, and I would have hoped for better from her. I remember her talking about racism, and her comment was, we, we, just, we just don't talk enough about racism in this country. Why, every time anything happens to a Jew, we talk about anti-Semitism over and over again, but we never talk about, about um, racism. And I'm going, really? You, you want to go there? You want to make enemies? <laughs> you you want to you you uh, you know, stake out territory you know, against someone who's also been discriminated against and suffered a lot? But, you know, that's not what we should be aiming at. Uh, and there's just a, and, and the reality is only a tiny number of the, of the anti-Semitic incidents ever get publicity uh, because I, I think people are just afraid to talk too much about it. Do you know, Stan, if I may, and it's unfortunate, we'd love to do this again. Sure. But we reached the end of a, a very quick hour. I recommend to everyone to read the book. I recommend to everyone to consider what the book says. Our guest has been Mr. Stan Goldman. Author, raconteur, conversationalist. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. <laughs>